This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the last decade of running my sex and psychology blog, I've received countless emails and messages from people who have discovered their partner has a kink that they didn't previously know about, and now they're deeply bothered or concerned. Perhaps they saw a tab on a shared computer that was accidentally left open. Maybe they went snooping through their partner's porn search history, or perhaps their partner simply shared a fantasy. No matter how the kink came to light, the partner learning about it often feels betrayed and bewildered. Sometimes it creates trust issues because they feel like their partner was keeping secrets. Sometimes they feel unsure of whether their partner is still attracted to them. Sometimes they feel disgusted because they don't share the same fantasy. So how do you navigate situations like this? That's what we're going to be discussing today. We're going to explore what to do when a vanilla person discovers that their partner has a kinky streak. The fact that you both want different things from sex doesn't have to mean the end of your relationship. So we're going to talk about tips for how to make that work. I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Gerlich, award-winning author of The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. Stephanie is also a certified sex therapist and a member of the teaching faculty at the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program. Her latest book is titled With Sprinkles on Top, Everything Vanilla People and Their Kinky Partners Need to Know to Communicate, Explore, and Connect. This is going to be an amazing and very practical conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute's Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items in the Kinsey Institute Gallery on the Indiana University Bloomington campus. You can also find Kinsey Institute art exhibitions at the Will Zig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Their next exhibit, titled Bettina Rhymes, Everything All at Once, opens December 4th. Check the show notes for more information or visit kinseyinstitute.org or follow at Kinsey Institute on the socials. In any long-term relationship, partners aren't always going to be on the same page about sex. That's normal. But sometimes our sex drives get really out of sync, which can lead to bigger relationship issues. If you're looking for help navigating a situation like this, check out Beducated. They have an amazing library of online courses, including one on mismatched sex drives. This course will help you to better understand the difference between sexual desire and sex drive, tips for dealing with discrepant libidos, ways to improve communication, and so much more. It's full of practical guidelines to help you and your partner get your sex life back on track. The content is created by experts, and there's so much to learn. Try all of Beducated's courses today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy. So I want to talk about your new book, With Sprinkles on Top, and I want to start with what that title means. When I hear the phrase, With Sprinkles on Top, I, of course, imagine some kind of ice cream sundae, and it makes me hungry, but this is not a book about ice cream. So tell us what the sprinkles are that you're referring to. 
So some of your listeners might know me as somebody that specializes in BDSM kink and mental health, but about 70 to 80% of my practice is couples. And a good number of those couples are people who are struggling with differences in desire, where one person might identify as quite kinky and the other as more vanilla. And often when they come in, they're under the impression that one of them has to change, that either the kinky person needs to tone things down and become a much more vanilla person, or that the vanilla person needs to become kinkier. And I tend to approach these conversations from the idea that everybody is best in a relationship when they are their most authentic selves. I don't want to change anybody. But what I do want to help my vanilla partnered people do is find ways to add sprinkles to their relationship, to enhance their vanilla-ness, to decorate their vanilla-ness without necessarily saying that we need them to change it at its core. So when I talk about with sprinkles on top, I'm talking about ways in which vanilla people and their kinky partners can find common ground in their relationships, in their intimate lives, without feeling like one or either of them needs to turn into something different. We're not changing the flavor. We're just adding some sprinkles. I love that. I think it's a great way of putting it. So this book, as you said, is for helping people navigate relationships when one partner is vanilla and the other is kinky. I know there are a lot of people out there who don't like the term vanilla being used to describe somebody's sexuality because to them, it implies that it's bland or boring. And it's sometimes used in a very pejorative way, like, ugh, you're so vanilla. And that can lead people who are labeled as vanilla to feel ashamed. But that's not a good or healthy way to look at things. So what is it that you as a sex therapist tell people who are worried about being too vanilla? So I really love to reclaim the idea of vanilla. My practice ever since COVID has been entirely telehealth. But back in the good old days of bricks and mortar, the before times, I actually kept the King Arthur cookie cookbook in my office. And whenever somebody went, oh, I'm, I'm just so vanilla, or I'm so boring, or they're never going to want me, I'm too vanilla, I would pull out that cookbook and I would challenge them to find any recipe anywhere in it that didn't require vanilla. And I really work very hard to reclaim this idea of vanilla as boring and to look at it instead as much more foundational. You know, when I think about vanilla relationships, what they're built on is this idea of love and intimacy and connection and trust and enjoyment and pleasure and shared desire and mutual respect and all of those things should also be present in a healthy kink relationship. We're not, you know, saying that somebody that isn't kinky is lacking somehow. What we're saying is they have a solid foundation of a healthy relationship and a core understanding of what they want and what they don't want that we can then build on, explore, and play with. Vanilla is our solid foundation. It's not bland or boring. I totally agree with that. And I think that's a message that needs to get out there. And fun fact, I do have some cookbooks on the shelf behind me, but they're not like the King Arthur cookbook you mentioned. Like one is called Fork Me, Spoon Me, and it's like an aphrodisiac-based cookbook. I think there's a Fifty Shades of Cockbook behind me, which is like 
it's a cookbook with like erotic chicken recipes and there's pictures of you know chickens all tied up in bondage but anyway um <laughs> that's just a little bit about my library so in long-term relationships partners often have different sexual interests but they don't necessarily share those interests with each other early on in the relationship sometimes a partner will have a kink or a fetish that they keep secret and it only comes out much further down the road so for example i've heard from a lot of readers and listeners over the years who've said they've discovered their partner's porn search history or their partner shared a fantasy with them and now they're questioning everything about their relationship so tell us a little bit about the common reactions that people have to discovering a partner's kink and maybe how they can better navigate those very strong feelings that they often have in that moment So there are a couple of different ways in which we get information about our partner's fantasy lives, private practices, and some of them are healthier than others. And the way (laughs) that you get that information is going to influence how you receive and process it. Somebody that stumbles across their partner's porn browser history, like you mentioned, that can be startling, that can be unexpected, that can be like a bad surprise, and they're going to have a reaction to that. And that reaction is very normal. And even if it's negative in the moment, even if it's anxious or fearful in the moment, that's totally okay. That reaction is a little bit different than what happens when we think our partner's up to something and we sit them down and we're not going to let them leave until they tell us. And those sort of coercive disclosures where privacy and autonomy are no longer on the table and now I am just going to beg or badger until you tell me what I think I already know, that can be incredibly, incredibly damaging to a relationship. And then, you know, my ideal scenario is that the kinky person says, this is an important part of my life, or this is something I've always been curious about, and I want to include you in that, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to tell you this voluntarily of my own time and plan and place. And those can be still difficult moments for the person hearing the information, but much different than dragging something out of a partner, which is a trust violation, or stumbling across something unexpected. So I often start by talking about, you know, how did that disclosure occur? How did we find this information? And how does that influence the way we feel about it and respond to it? In my practice, I don't necessarily believe that partners have to tell each other everything. I think we have a right to privacy, even in relationships, and that privacy is not the same as secret keeping. So that discovery point and the emotional reaction that it evokes is really, really important clinically for me, because there's going to be an emotional and ethical difference between I went to get on the laptop and they didn't realize it was still connected to their tablet versus they've been lying to me for 20 years versus I thought they were up to something and I made them tell me. All of those are going to influence the way that we receive and process this information. And so that's really where I start. Yeah, those are all incredibly important points. And there are so many ways that kinks can come to light in a relationship. And, you know, as you mentioned, the ones that arise from snooping often doesn't turn out well for people. You know, rarely have I seen people pleasantly surprised when they've gone snooping into their partner's past or porn search history or something. Although there have been some rare cases where readers have told me that they discovered that their partner was 
cheating on them. And then that actually kind of became a kink for them and it turned them on. And so then they became into cuckolding. So I wouldn't say that's the common pathway, but you know, that's something that can happen in this. I think that snooping point, or I, I would even, you know, maybe call it investigating because snooping can feel very values laden. That process of investigating our partner whether it's about their sexuality or anything else, you know, as somebody that works with couples, that's a red flag to me. Like there's already been a trust breach in some way, whether because you are concerned your partner is hiding something from you or they might not be doing anything, but you are so lacking in core trust in the relationship that you're feeling the need to investigate and explore and search. And so, you know, whether we find something or not, that sort of impetus to investigate our partner, I think it warrants some self-reflection and maybe even some intervention. Maybe if we go to couples counseling before we snoop, we'll create an environment where whatever we want to know can come out safely and honestly. Yeah. And if you're going about investigating your partner, as you put it, something that often happens is that there already is some deep suspicion about them. And so then that's going to filter the lens through which you view everything. And so if you encounter ambiguous information, there's a tendency to interpret it in the worst possible light. And, you know, that's another reason why that often doesn't turn out well. But anyway, I've done several episodes of the show on sexual desire discrepancies, focusing specifically on situations where one partner has a higher libido than the other. But desire discrepancies can also take the form of wanting different types or kinds of sex. And in the case of a vanilla pair, they might actually have very similar libidos and want the same amount of sex. They just want fundamentally different kinds of sex. So for this type of desire discrepancy, where's the starting point? You know, where do we even begin when partners just want and enjoy very different things? So perhaps counterintuitively, I start by setting aside the whole topic of kink and the kinky partner's desires. Because people who have kinks and fetishes have thought about that, reflected on it, they've created that sort of erotic map in their minds. And that is a process that most of us who identify as vanilla don't get to have. We're not taught about fantasy and pleasure in sex ed. We're not given sort of a menu of all the things that you could want so that you can decide whether you actually do or not. And so in my work, I really start by centering the more vanilla partner and then really thinking deeply and doing a lot of interactive and self-reflective exercises to help them think about what their desires are and what their erotic maps are. We do Q&A interviews about what they fantasize about, what sort of erotic or romantic content they like to read in media, uh, what sort of sensations they like in terms of touch and tactile sensation and temperature. And only after we've really, really fleshed out the vanilla person's sort of erotic identity, which is often the first time they've ever gotten to do that, then we bring the kinky person back into the conversation and we look at where can we tie threads and where might there be some overlap in this Venn between you two. And maybe we're not using the same words, but perhaps we're describing the same sensations. And from there, we can start to build sort of a shared model for intimacy that lets both of them feel as if their authentic core needs are being met without necessarily needing to be super performative or giving up a lot that is important to them. 
Yeah. And I know that will strike some people as counterintuitive or paradoxical to be like, let's set the kink aside temporarily. But, you know, there are some paradoxical things that happen when you're in sex therapy. And another piece of advice that often happens is that, you know, when you start sex therapy, you're often just told to put sex off the table for a little while, temporarily stop having sex because you need to work on some of these underlying issues, explore things before you start engaging again sexually because there might be this long history of anxiety or other things tied up in sex. And so, yeah, just kind of tabling some things sometimes is important and really doing that work in terms of fleshing out and better understanding your own sexuality. It can also really help with that sort of emotional reactivity around the discovery that you mentioned earlier, because, you know, if somebody comes in and they've just learned something new and maybe overwhelming about their partner, often sort of the reactive impulse is, I want to understand it, I want to pick it apart, I want to put it under a spotlight, and then I want to fix it. And so by saying, you know, we're actually not going to do that yet. We're actually going to think about you and we're going to think about what you want and what you enjoy and what feels right and good and pleasurable for you. It gives the both people time for that emotional reaction to settle down. And then also it can change how they view their partner's kinks, because now that I've had a chance to think about really deeply and in detail what I want maybe what you want doesn't feel so far afield now. It's an empathy building process as much as anything else. So even though it can feel counterintuitive to say, you know, you're coming in because you found out your partner's kinky and you don't know what to do with it, to say, we're not going to talk about that yet. It really is important work in getting to a place where you can talk about both of your sexualities, both of your desires without judgment, without fear, and really transparently. Yeah, I love that. Whenever I give talks on sexual fantasies, I have a section focused on what to do when the partners aren't into each other's fantasies. And something that I suggest that's kind of similar to what you're saying is that let's put aside like those very highly specific scenarios that people have in mind because fantasies are often very detailed. They aren't always, you know, when I survey people about their sexual fantasies and give them an opportunity to write them out in as much detail as they want, some people literally just write the word sex, right? So, you know, for some people, it's not quite as elaborate as others. But one thing I advise people to do is to kind of dive down deeper into what are the layers, the meanings that are in their fantasies? What are the sensations, the sounds, the emotions, the dynamics that just really get you going? And then using that information to try and build these kind of custom fantasies to see where is the overlap between them. So I love how you talk about this in your book. You talk about kind of like doing an anatomy of your fantasies and kind of defining what your own sexual sandboxes so that you can go and play in it. So tell us a little bit more about kind of how do you find the common ground in your fantasies after you do this anatomy of them and you really dissect like, what is it that I'm really after here? So I try to get people to focus on their mutual yeses. I think it is really easy to make a list of hard limits of no, I'm not gonna's or don't even asks. And there is a place for that. I want people to know what their limits are and to be comfortable setting those boundaries. But in relationship, starting from the no can feel very closed off and it can shut down a lot of communication. So what I like to do is help people define as many of their yeses as they possibly can. And you you named some of them. It can be a form of sensation. It can be a choice of word. It can be a place, a time of day, a wardrobe, any number of things. And then once we have the biggest sandbox of yeses possible, 
Now we can start to combine those and we can start to bring your favorite toys together with my favorite toys and we can build something really unique and novel for us that we might not be able to do if what we were doing was shutting a series of doors and saying, okay, this is what's left. To your point, I do also like to get really granular. I don't want to hear, I like to be tied up with jute rope. I like to hear, I like the sensation of squeezing. I like to hear, I like the rough texture of jute versus the softness of cotton. I like to hear what parts of the body. I love it when my thighs are wrapped up versus my wrists because we're going to take those pieces, the texture being rough, the squeezing sensation, the focus on thighs instead of wrists. And all of those become toys that we can then recombine and play around with and get creative with to come up with something that works for both of you. And when we're able to get beyond the description of the fantasy and into what is the need that that fantasy meets and what is that itch that's being scratched, there's lots of ways to get there. But we need to go beyond just the descriptors and into the whys. And the whys for me become that sort of yes sandbox that we can play in together. Yeah, I think that's so important, this focus on the yeses. Because so much of sexual communication is about the no's, the limits, the boundaries. And yes, as you've said, those are very important things. But if you only say what's off limits... How do you know what is available and left over to play with or what is really going to get you or your partner going? So I think that's a really great exercise and way to kind of go through all of this. Now, something else that's often helpful in bridging sexual desire discrepancies is, you know, just kind of exploring your own sexuality in more detail. This isn't necessarily about diving deeper into the fantasies, but seeing if you can discover those new turn-ons, those sprinkles, as you put it. And sometimes we don't know what we like until we try it. And an analogy I often like to make is it's the same way with food. You know, there are new foods that you will try at certain points in your life. And once you put it in your mouth, you have this reaction of, where has this been all of my life? You know, you're introduced to these new sensations that are very pleasurable. And then you start developing this craving for it. You want it more. And I think that it's often the same way when it comes to sex is that we try something new and it just unlocks something in us. You know, we didn't know we could experience that pleasure or that sensation. That's the thing that makes you want it more. So can you give us some tips on how people can kind of go about discovering their sprinkles and uncovering and finding some of those new turn-ons? Absolutely. First of all, I love your comparison to food. I read somewhere that, I mean, we're constantly, you know, our bodies are shedding cells and developing new cells. And we have effectively a whole body turnover about every seven or eight years. And that's part of why foods we didn't like in the past, we might revisit later and love. Because literally the tongue we were tasting them with then is gone and we have a whole new tongue. So one of the things that I was reading was that you, if you have something you don't like garlic or cilantro or anything hummus um <laughs> give yourself seven years to not like it but then try it again and see if your taste buds have shifted because our bodies are always changing and i think that that is equally true when it comes to physical touch and other sensations i want to be careful here because you know we have a brain body connection right if somebody has a traumatic memory connected to a sensory experience, I'm not going to tell them to rush into trying that again. But 
For most people, even where those trauma memories are, they are big, they are noticeable, and there's a lot of other places to play. And there's a lot of difference between I tried it, it wasn't my thing, versus that happened in a context that was terrifying. And so anything that falls outside of that second category, I encourage people to play around with and to recognize that every kind of sensation is a spectrum. I mentioned liking jute rope because it's rough, but maybe uh, what you really like is the roughness piece. So maybe that means that a hairbrush or a comb or any number of other things, or maybe it could be you say, I tried that, I didn't like it, I really don't like rough textures. But what you don't like is rough rope because it's squeezing. And a light rough touch like um, corduroy could feel very different for you. So it's recognizing that everything is combinable in different ways. And it's playing with sensation and pressure and body part and time to really build a wide emotional vocabulary. And it can be super fun for couples to do together. I have a modified version of um, what in sex therapy, you know, we talk about sensate focus touch, very structured touch exercises. But in sprinkles, I've modified that to be focused on texture. You know, what happens if we experiment with different textures? What happens if we experiment with different times of day giving and receiving touch, different positions that we might put our bodies in fully clothed with no sexual contact? And just having those moments to go, huh, how does this feel to me right now when I'm a little bit hungry at nine o'clock at night versus at three o'clock in the afternoon when I just had a glass of wine and I'm with the person I love the most. And recognizing that there are multiple variables that contribute to all of the things that we decide we like or don't like and giving ourselves permission to be really playful in that. And that's another part of why sprinkles is such an apt metaphor, right? Like nobody has like one giant sprinkle. You have like a handful of several thousand and it's looking at all of the teeny tiny little colorful ways that things can be combined and aligned that really make this process fun and can be super connective for couples that are struggling to reconnect after a discovery or disclosure. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about all of that, I couldn't help but think of the movie Nine and a Half Weeks. And there's this classic scene in that film where the characters are you know, just in front of the refrigerator late at night and the doors open and they're pulling out all the different foods in there one by one and kind of exploring them in this sensual way. And it's a scene that is full of those different textures. And you can imagine what it would be like to be in the midst of that with the scents and the tastes and all of that as well. And so, you know, if you want to recreate that scene, you know, that could be a good way of maybe exploring some of those sprinkles and also expanding your palate at the same time. 100%. <laughs> now, another way kinky vanilla pairs sometimes manage to make things work is by exploring some form of consensual non-monogamy. So for example, in some of my research on friends with benefits, I've had participants describe how they have a romantic relationship with their vanilla partner, but then they have a friend with benefits with whom they have kinky sex. So talk to us a little bit about this. How can opening up a relationship potentially help in this situation? And do you have any tips on how to do that right if you've never opened up a relationship before? So that latter piece is a huge question. Yep. Uh, the short answer would be, I do not think that anybody should open their relationship in order to solve a problem in their relationship. You have to be in a good place together before you can add other people in. Otherwise, you are using human beings as relationship band-aids, and that's not fair to them or to you. So that's the short answer, is you want to do the good couple's work first before we get to this point. 
But one of the things that is a big myth about BDSM is that it's intrinsically sexual. For a lot of people, it is relational. For a lot of people, it is sensory. There are so many reasons why people engage in kinky play that might never involve nudity or penetrative intercourse. And so for some of my couples, having a conversation about what those relationships can look like and how one partner that very deeply wants a specific kind of, I don't know, maybe sadomasochistic play that just makes their spouse feel really uncomfortable or wants a power exchange dynamic that the other person is not willing to take on how those can be framed up and understood as relational experiences akin to a friendship, not as a sexual betrayal, because not all BDSM and kink is sexual. And so that reframing can be really helpful. And recognizing that we have all kinds of different relationships can be really powerful. I know that lots and lots of kinky people are familiar with yes, no, maybe lists. And it's one of like sort of the core tools. There are a million of them online. I put one in sprinkles, but mine adds in a variable because mine adds the option of I'm okay with you doing that with someone else. So instead of just yes, no, maybe it's I want to learn more. I would try that. I wouldn't try that. I'm okay with you doing it alone, or I'm okay with you doing it with somebody else. And I think creating that bigger spectrum and making it more behavior specific, it doesn't need to be, we're going to embrace full-on polyamory and I want you to go and find another partner. But being able to say this specific activity or this unique kind of touch or this fetish play that you want to engage in, that I'm comfortable with you doing with somebody else can be a really powerful thing because most of the time when we think about kink, we think about it as intrinsically erotic or sexy. And that can be a huge barrier for people who just want a sensory experience or who maybe want an erotic experience that doesn't necessarily involve traditionally understood notions of sex, like fetish play. If all somebody wants is to roll around naked on a bed while somebody throws inflated balloons at them, They should be able to have that. And I suspect a lot of their partners probably wouldn't consider that to be cheating if nobody's ever touching each other. So being expansive about what kink is for, what it can look like, and what kinds of relationships can be built can be a really nice path forward for some of my couples. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. And especially about the part with you need to if you're going to open up do it from a place of strength you know if you're doing it to solve a relationship problem and the relationship's in a bad place to begin with opening up usually doesn't help in those situations and can actually make things much worse now i have one more question for you on this topic and it deals with one of the later chapters in your book which is titled when it all feels hopeless now the unfortunate reality is that partners with discrepant desires sometimes really struggle to find middle ground So let's say partners have put in the work, they've done all the things that we've been talking about today, but they're just really struggling to connect sexually. It's just not working out. How do you navigate that situation? And when is parting ways the answer? So I don't think that I can ever tell a couple when parting ways is the answer. But I think that as a clinician, it's my job to be really comfortable with them coming to that point themselves. And I think it's okay for us to ask the question. I don't think I should ever be prescribing divorce. (laughs) But I also think it's okay to say, are you two here because you're looking for permission to be done? 
And that's a very different question. Lots of couples will come to therapy because one or both of them have already decided that they're done, but they don't want to be the bad guy. They don't want to be the decision maker. They don't want to let their families down or not live up to their religious vows. And so they come to therapy, not really wanting to do the work, but wanting to have permission to verbalize the decision they've already made. And for me, I am very, very comfortable in that role. I have jokingly been called a divorce doula. Um, And I think that's okay. I think that, you know, some of our couples need people that will help them end a relationship as lovingly and kindly as compassionately as they entered into it. And I do think it's okay to say, you are an amazing person and I love you and we are great friends and awesome co-parents, but we are never going to be the spouses that we each deserve. That is 100% okay. And I think there needs to be a space for people to have those conversations. So in my book, I talk about, you know, some of the benefits of divorce, challenging some of the fears that keep people in a relationship that isn't serving them. And I give them permission to make that decision for themselves. I am a, a person of faith. I'm a practicing Jew. And Jewish culture doesn't just have a a religious marriage. We also have a process for religious divorce. And in my tradition, you actually have an obligation to divorce when things aren't working because marriage is so holy and marriage is so sacred that you shouldn't desecrate it by staying in a bad one. And I think whether somebody is religious or like the most like passionate atheist on the block, that is a mindset that we can all get behind. I think we can all say that marriage is so important that we actually drag down what it means to be married when we're constantly swimming uphill and keeping each other in a bad situation. So I think it's really important to be comfortable knowing when you're done. And I think it's okay to need permission to say that when you find that realization, but nobody can decide that for the people I work with except for them. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think it's a fascinating and very important perspective in all of this. And I think it also highlights something that I've said many times on the show before, which is that the goal of sex and relationship therapy isn't to save the relationship at all costs, because sometimes that is impossible. Sometimes ending the relationship is the best thing for everyone involved, but you're so right. It's not the therapist telling you that. It's the clients coming to that realization themselves. So I appreciate you sharing all of this information today, Stephanie. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your latest book? Uh, Yeah. So for all of my books, they can go to my author website, which is stephaniegorlick.com. My parents got creative. So it's S-T-E-F-A-N-I gorlick.com. But most importantly, come and join us at the conference. And if you can't physically be there, we do have a recorded access option. So um, you can get uh, all of our workshops, plenaries, keynotes recorded after the fact sent to you. And that is securingsexuality.com. Either directly like that, or if you're going through one of the meta products, you know, you can put the threes in and get my diatribe about why online censorship sucks. But securingsexuality.com, it's October 19th and 20th in Detroit. It is going to be an amazing experience. I cannot say how passionate I am about getting this information out to as many people as possible. I genuinely think for a lot of my marginalized clients, this is life and death information. For everybody else, it's just good best practices to have because 
the technology is the water we swim in these days. There's no avoiding it. We might as well learn how to do it safely. Yeah. I appreciate the work that you're doing and appreciate having you here. So thank you again for your time and thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Stephanie's new book, With Sprinkles on Top. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Thank you.